When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three... The creativity within the Tim Burton-Danny Elfman collaboration took an exponential leap in the fall of 1993 thanks to their work on a stop-motion animated holiday mashup musical. This is The Soundtrack Show. the greatest Danny Elfman music of all time? Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode is Halloween. As we listen to the thrills and chills of the music of Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, a film from 1993 by Touchstone Pictures, well, Disney, to be honest, produced by Tim Burton, directed by Henry Selick, starring the composer himself, Danny Elfman. How many other film composers can we think of for a movie that wrote the songs, scored the movie, and starred as the lead singing role? In this way, Danny Elfman really stands out from his peers, and in my opinion, and the reason why I asked if this is the greatest Danny Elfman music of all time, which I will quickly admit is a ridiculously subjective question, in my opinion, it may be Elfman's greatest work because of its rare quality and the more than usual, nay, massive, contribution that he had on this film. Elfman's personality, his humor, storytelling, performance, and overall footprint on this movie can't be understated. So in this way, mine was more of a technical question based on how much of this movie I believe belongs to Danny Elfman. And don't get me wrong, Tim Burton's concept for The Nightmare Before Christmas was genius and filled with so much creative potential. Here's a clip of Tim Burton talking about what inspired him to originally make this movie. Well, I grew up liking those stories like, uh, you know, every uh, Christmas you'd watch things like uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or uh, like The Grinch That Stole Christmas. Those were my favorite uh, 
my holiday specials when I was growing up. So uh, when I was at working at Disney, um, I designed something that's sort of like the reverse of that. It's like the Grinch in reverse, so to speak, about this character who finds Christmas and uh, uh, loves it and decides to, to try to do it himself. Kim very much uh, developed the story. The, um, the concept is used, the main characters, the tone, the look. And I love that Nightmare Before Christmas saw Burton going full circle. I mean, here's someone who went to CalArts and was hired at Disney as an animator. He created two shorts, uh, Vincent and Frankenweenie, for Disney while he worked there in the early 80s, and then was essentially let go. But not before sketching characters and coming up with a basic idea that would eventually become the Nightmare Before Christmas while he was at Disney. But after Tim Burton and Disney parted ways, he went on to make some incredibly successful films as a director. 1985's Pee-wee's Big Adventure, 1988's Beetlejuice, 1989's Batman, and 1990's Edward Scissorhands, which, by the way, has its own incredible film score, which I will get to at a later date. And one other thing to add here is, of course, that all of the movies that I just mentioned were scored by Danny Elfman. But none of these movies that Tim Burton made were for Disney. So it's kind of a fun twist of events when, after Burton was incredibly successful, a proven box office success, as well as someone with such a unique style, he went back to Disney. And this time, with considerably more power. He approached Disney and basically said, hey, there's this idea that I had while I was working for you guys, and I want it. Long story short, he and we got it. When Tim Burton went back to Disney a couple of years ago and said, you have a project of mine that I, I'm still interested in doing. And they dug out not only his treatment, they dug, dug out a lot of his artwork. If you look on the walls, you'll find as much of, of uh, Tim's original artwork as you will the stuff that we've now done in terms of designing sets. So it's his artwork from that long ago is really the kickoff point for the design of the movie. So he began pre-production with artists and with Danny Elfman and set up multiple sound stages and created a company that began production in the San Francisco Bay Area, far away from Disney's Burbank studio lot. Over a three-year period, they filled 19 sound stages with Nightmare's 230 sets and hundreds of individual puppet characters. So we had to create a company to do this. We moved into this building, I think, in July of uh, 91, and we had to be in production by uh, October 1st. The groundbreaking work that director Henry Selick's team did in stop-motion animation was breathtaking. And by the way, the team featured some other folks that went on to do amazing animation, art, and story work at companies like Pixar, including the late Joe Ramft, a story artist and voice actor. This crew made a beautiful-looking movie, one that, by the way, took a whole week of shooting just to produce one full minute of animated footage. So, when I say that Danny Elfman's contribution to this movie is huge, I am in no way taking anything away from Tim Burton or Selleck or his crew— but, as it turns out, it was the music that drove the story along as it was in development. It was the songwriting that helped the script take shape. In fact, the songs were the very first things put into production. They were the very first things to be animated. Basically, we didn't really have a script. 
and uh, there was the storyline that Tim had had from years earlier. We didn't start out going it should be uh, this or that. It sort of grew from the images and the story and, and took on a life of its own. We were running out of time. <laughs> I just said, well, I'll just start writing some of the songs based on what we talked about. And I started and he'd come over and he'd listen to it. And then I'd say, let's just talk about the next section of the movie. And we'd talk about it and tell me, oh, and he does this and that. And I said, great, great. And as soon as he left, I'd immediately go and start writing that next song. They got us through the next period. And three days later, I'd call him back and he'd come and listen, oh, great. And now describe the next couple of scenes. He had pictures of all these characters. And if he didn't, he'd pull out a scrap of paper and draw it for me. So I had some really good visual uh, stimulus to, to get going. I would say the difference between three years worth of work on something like this and six or eight weeks on a score, you can't really compare. We've worked together at least my whole career, you know, in movies and all, and it's just been the greatest collaboration I've been involved with. He's a great songwriter as well as a composer. So there already was Tim and Danny and songs, and um, because those were, were very much finalized at an early stage, those were the first things that we went into production on. And these songs weren't just filler. They weren't just songs that were like that classic operatic aria where the plot would stop for a few minutes as a character just kind of repeated themselves about whatever emotion they were feeling. I'm so in love with Carol, I'll just pontificate about it for 15 minutes. No, it wasn't that at all. These were plot-driven songs. The lyrics and the songs push the story along very, very quickly. The lyrics are incredibly dense and they contain a lot of plot information. Did everything completely in order. Just like, let's talk about the very beginning. This is Halloween. It's like, okay, now Jack is basically wandering out and he's lonely and he's going to wander to this kind of, and he showed me the shape of the kind of the peak he was on and he's going to sing about how he's looking for something else and, and like that. And I said, okay, okay, got it, got it like that. And then I go, okay, so now Jack is in the forest and... You know, and we just kind of went through it piece by piece. We, we really didn't know how much of the story we were going to tell in song. To kind of flesh it out and try to bring it to life in the songs was really, was really wonderful. And we wanted to make it a real old-fashioned musical where the story is being told in the songs. Oftentimes with a movie, if you replace the composer, yes, the movie is different. Sometimes very, very different. But in the case of this movie, kind of like in a musical, and especially an animated musical, the Nightmare Before Christmas, it just wouldn't exist the same way at all without Danny Elfman. Not only would the songs be different, but the story would most likely be different. The sequences, the animated sequences would be different. One thing to note about animation, by the way, and we've never really talked about this on the soundtrack show, but in animation, portions of audio, like songs or voiceover, come first. They're recorded in pre-production. They're called pre-records. And then animation is actually timed to recorded voice lines, or timed to songs. Anything that affects the animation on screen must be done well ahead of time, before animation, or even before previous or moving storyboards can begin. Nothing can be timed out. Ideas can't flow in detail. Voices are read on exposure sheets so we know precisely when to change a mouth position. We've fed a photograph of each head into this computer, then we pick a head to match each syllable of the character's dialogue or song. This establishes which head or mouth position the animator will use. 
for instance, I need to use head number 43, so I'm to look here, there's 43, and that's the head that I'm using right now. Musicals are essentially the same way, even when they're not animated and are just live action. You need music in order to choreograph sequences. And I don't just mean dancers, I mean shot sequences, camera moves, etc. So Elfman's contribution is even more important due to the fact that The Nightmare Before Christmas is an animated film as well as being a musical. And this particular animated movie musical represents a creative spike in the Burton-Elfman collaboration that saw those two playing to all of their strengths, being exactly who they are, with so much joy, undiluted joy that's totally demonstrable on screen. Burton's imagination, his German expressionism meets Dr. Seuss style, combined with Danny Elfman's gothic cabaret songwriting and film scoring. Speaking of which, it's funny. Oftentimes, composers are asked about their signature sound. Well, in 2017, Elfman was asked about his sound, air quotes, and his response was very thoughtful. Check this out. How would you define that, as horrible as it may be for you to have to answer this question now that I'm asking it, I realize, how would you define that Danny Elfman thing when someone asks you for it? I I actually don't know. Um, You know, like, I grew up on the music of Bernard Herrmann, Mm -hmm. And that's what inspired me to love film music. But I couldn't tell you what the Bernard Herrmann sound is either. I could describe Vertigo or Psycho, but I couldn't tell you what his sound is. Um, I would hope, if you look at the body of my work, you couldn't really define what the sound is exactly either. I mean, you could pick a movie and go, that's the sound, Batman or, you know, or Beetlejuice or, you know, something like that. But uh, I hope I've gone beyond that. I get why he's saying this. Here's a man that has written hours of music for over a hundred films and throughout his career has proven to be very, very flexible, pretty much a chameleon at times. But if you were to ask me what Elfman's sound is, or perhaps the average movie music fan, they would probably refer to the Doompah sound that I referenced in my episode titled Danny Elfman from Boingo to Beetlejuice. To me, Elfman's sound is this Love of old-fashioned songs and songwriting that comes from songwriters like Kurt Vile, who wrote songs famously for the plays of Bertolt Brecht, or from Cab Calloway, or from others that were active in the early 20th century. I really felt like I was coming from a, you know, my influences were Kurt Vile from the 1920s, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan from the late 1800s, you know, different things, Uh, obviously Cab Calloway also from the 30s. And then you combine that aesthetic with Elfman's love for theatricality, as seen in his Mystic Nights of the Oingo Boingo days, and his love for all things macabre. Here's a clip from an interview Elfman did in his home with the E! Network back when Nightmare was released. Halloween's been my favorite night of the year since I was six years old. It was the one night that I really waited for. I love the imagery. I've collected Day of the Dead images for 20 years. Uh, my house is filled with skeletons and mummified objects. Danny's respect for film music is enormous, but he's also inspired by a house full of artifacts he's gathered around the world, from Mexican Day of the Dead skeletons to a shrunken head and a disembodied finger of long ago. No wonder he identifies so strongly with the skeletal character in Nightmare Before Christmas. As you can tell, Danny Elfman, who he is, his personality, his musical tastes, his unique ability to be a film composer, songwriter, and frontman all came together perfectly with Nightmare Before Christmas. It's such a unique showpiece for him. Essentially, Danny Elfman is the character that he's playing. He is the songs he wrote. 
He is Jack Skellington. I did the demos, and at a certain point, I went to Tim, and I said, there's a lot of better singers than, than I am, but Jack is for me. He's, he is me. And um, Tim agreed. When Tim started describing the character to me, it didn't take a lot of searching in my own soul to find what Jack Skellington is. Um, there's so much of my own personality and his personality, the uh, getting very enthusiastic and then plunging down into this melancholy state. I mean, that's me. So while Elfman is far more than that particular Doompaw sound, it was so unique and new when it broke. Such an interesting alternative in terms of style and sound that was offered to audiences in the 80s and 90s that it's no wonder that he is so strongly associated with it. It clearly left a huge mark on pop culture, with Nightmare Before Christmas showcasing his talent like no other film had to that point, or arguably since. So let's start in with the music. Elfman didn't want to write something that sounded like pop or something like contemporary Broadway. He wanted to keep the music sounding old-fashioned, like his Mystic Nights days. I wanted it to sound like it could come from any era, that it could come from the 30s or the 50s or the 90s or it didn't make any difference. That, so I tried to look for all kinds of different influences of mine except Broadway. That was the one thing I really didn't want it to sound like Broadway or like a contemporary musical. And while they were developing the songs, they were actually also developing the story. And they started from the beginning. And it all came together as they worked chronologically. The first completed song was the movie's opening number, establishing all of the characters in Halloween Town who are responsible for putting on Halloween every year. Let's take a listen to This Is Halloween. Boys and girls of every age, wouldn't you like to see something strange? Come with us and you will see, this our town of Halloween. This is Halloween, this is Halloween, pumpkins scream in the dead of night. This is Halloween, everybody make a scene, trick or treat. Tell the neighbors on a diaphragm, it's our town, everybody's What's so striking about this song is just how catchy it is. The melody fits the lyrical content perfectly, which is an example of great songwriting. If you just say out loud, this is Halloween, it has a natural rhythm to it. This is Halloween. One, two, one, two, three. One, two, one, two, three. And a whole song is born out of that lyric, with a huge cast of spooky characters supporting it, setting the stage, and providing the exposition for the black, white, and orange world of Halloween Town. Notice, too, that this isn't a pop type of song. This isn't the Broadway musicals that were fashionable in the 80s and 90s. These songs are intentionally written in a much older style to make them timeless. Compare this. To this. You're joking. You're joking. I can't believe my eyes. You're joking me. You gotta be. This can't be the right guy. Or this. And I know it's only in my mind that I'm talking to myself and not to him. To this. And though I'd like to stand by. 
stylistically, The Nightmare Before Christmas is not of its time. It's not of any time or decade, really. This certainly is part of what makes this movie and its music so unique. Another really nice trick can be observed in this tune. It's how Danny Elfman treats this relatively simple melody. This is Halloween, this is Halloween, da-da-dum, da-da-dum. If you recall in my Batman the Music 1989 episode, I demonstrated how Elfman took the Batman's brief theme, this, and constantly switched keys around it in order to keep that same melodic figure fresh, exciting, and unpredictable. By the way, since we're talking about key changes as a composition device, he did the same thing with his Simpsons theme for Matt Groening, also written in 1989. Key change. And another key change. Key change. change. Well, the same is true for This Is Halloween. I'm going to play a little of it and call out all of the key changes as they happen. Boys and girls of we start out stating the melody in a simple C minor. Strange. Come with us and you will see this our town of Now G minor. This is Halloween, this is Halloween, pumpkin scream in the dead. A flat minor. This is Halloween. Everybody make a same trick or treat. Tell the neighbors B minor. It's so tall. Everybody's free. Leading to F sharp minor. I am the one hiding under your bed. Teeth ground sharp and eyes glowing red. I am the one hiding under your stairs. Fingers like snakes and... Now the melody again, but in C minor. This is Halloween. Quick modulation. A flat minor. Halloween. F minor. Halloween. Halloween. Leading to A flat minor. In this town, we call home. Everyone hail to the pumpkin song. Now F minor. Don't we love it now? Everybody's waiting for the next surprise. Found that corner and hiding in the trash can. Something's waiting now to pounce and how you. F sharp minor. It's like a green. Aren't you scared? Well, that's just fine. Say it once, say it twice. Take a chance and roll the dice. Ride with the moon in the dead of night. Everybody scream. Everybody scream. And now E minor. The tearaway face. Here in a flash of double dead trace. It happens so quickly and smoothly you don't even notice it. You get the point. Elfman keeps us on our toes the entire time. And thanks to all of the shifting keys, our ears never tire of that simple rhythmic figure. One, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three. This is very much a technique that Beethoven pioneered with his Fifth Symphony, taking a rhythmic figure, a simple rhythmic figure, and twisting and turning it as he explored the musical possibilities. We see that here in This Is Halloween, and it works really well. Not only does it add to the excitement of the visuals, but it also solves the age-old problem of getting us through the film's exposition. We're being introduced to a world here, and the plot isn't really moving yet, 
so it's vital that the music be really exciting. This is Halloween culminates in the introduction of Jack Skellington, the king of the pumpkin patch, Halloween's master of ceremonies, its rock star. Unbeknownst to us, we actually flew past him when he was dressed as a scarecrow in disguise at the top of the number, and now the whole town builds him up as he appears at the end of the song. Halloween is coming to a close, and all of Halloween Town is celebrating their spooky leader after a job well done. everybody. I believe it was our most horrible yet. With the stage set, Elfman and Burton begin to flip Halloween on its head, nearly destroying Christmas in the process. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. Another success for Halloween Town. They did it. They pulled off another fantastically frightening year. And immediately they start thinking about next year's Halloween. There's just one problem. Jack, the leader of it all, the Halloween visionary, is kind of tired of it. Hmm, career burnout, maybe. Maybe it's wanderlust. But anyway, he's maxed out. He wants a new challenge, new inspiration. But he's completely lost as to what that would even be. In short, the Pumpkin King is depressed. And here, Elfman gives us our musical I Want song, which sets up our main character's story arc. Let's take a listen to Jack's Lament. There are few who deny it. What I do, I am the best. For my talents are renowned far and wide. When it comes to surprises in the moonlit night, I excel without ever even trying. With the slightest little effort of my ghost-like charms, I have seen grown men give out a shriek. With the wave of my hand in a well-placed mode, I have swept the very bravest off their feet. Yet year after year, it's the same routine, and I grow so weary of the sound of screams. And I, Jack, the Pumpkin King, have grown so tired of the same old what a performance by Danny Elfman. So much personality. Oh, somewhere deep inside of these bones An emptiness began to grow There's something out there far from my home A longing that I've never I want to pay attention to a couple of things. First of all, the lyrics of this song are crucial to understanding Jack. This song wholly contains his plight via the lyrics. Spoken dialogue in this movie rarely moves the plot along. It's usually done via song. But let's listen again to this end bit. Elfman uses a centuries-old melody here as part of his storytelling. Oh, somewhere deep 
inside of these bones an emptiness began to grow. Did you hear it? I'm referring to the plain chant melody called Dies Irae that has been used by countless composers as a musical word for death from the 19th century romantic era all the way up to present day by multiple film composers. The melody goes like this. Those four notes, Dies Irae, means judgment day, day of wrath, day of reckoning, the end of the world, death. Dies Irae, Dies Ila, but just these four notes, Dies Irae. For more information about Dies Irae, which is Latin for day of wrath, check out my episode titled Doom and Gloom, Music Has a Word for Death. Anyway, we hear this word for death, we hear Dies Irae twice in this melody. The first time we hear it, it's filled with longing and a wonder as Jack searches his feelings on the line, Oh, somewhere deep inside of these bones. Oh, somewhere deep inside of these bones. That whole thing. And in fact, over the chord it's playing, it almost sounds like Lydian mode. Oh, somewhere deep. This Lydian mode. Kind of like our episodes on Back to the Future or The Simpsons. It gives it that kind of lift, that kind of uh, searching. It's not quite sorrowful yet, but this is Dies Irae. Oh, somewhere deep Dies Irae. Not quite as dark yet. And then it goes inside of these bones. But then there's a second line that also contains the Dies Irae, and it's clearly stated in E minor here. An emptiness began to grow. This is a lyric referring to emptiness, and we will associate this emptiness in Jack with death, or the danger that will exist in this movie's plot. We get Dies Irae several times, all the way through Jack's lament, even all the way to the end. The fame and praise come year after year does nothing for these empty tears. And let me tell you, my friends, that is not the last time in this movie that we will hear that DSRA melody. But more on that later. Anyway, that was two very dark songs in a row. First, This is Halloween, then Jack's Lament. But now, everything's about to change, as Jack, while aimlessly wandering through the woods, gets sucked into Christmas Town and experiences a winter wonderland filled with snow and light. The black, white, and orange world of Halloween Town is long gone, and suddenly, we're in a world that's exploding with bright, vivid colors. And Jack sings a show-stopping tune called, What's This? What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This isn't fair. What's this? What's this? What's this? There's something very wrong. What's this? There's people singing songs. What's this? The streets are lined with little creatures laughing. Everybody seems so happy. Have I possibly gone daffy? What is this? What's this? I love this song. I love the instantaneous, sudden gear switch that is this song. Let me lay out a couple reasons why I love it. 
First of all, the tempo, or speed of the song, is a stark contrast to what we've had so far. Obviously, Jack's Lament is a slow ballad, but This Is Halloween trudges with this slow, heavy, pounding beat, almost like heavy metal. It's no wonder people like Jonathan Davis from Korn, or Panic at the Disco, or Marilyn Manson have covered this tune. But now, with What's This, the tempo is so fast. Just like the visuals, the music has shifted as well. And the time signature of What's This is also notable. You know, I've seen sheet music of this in a slow three-quarter time. Bum one, bum two, bum three, bum 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 one, and two, and three, and da da one. But to my ear, that doesn't sound right. To me, this has always felt like a six. Basically, you double that. Bum one, two, and three, four, and five, and six, and one, two, and three, four. Or even, probably more accurately, because it doesn't always stay in six, it's a bar of four and then a bar of two. A one, two, and three, four, and one, and two, and one, two, and three, four, and one, and two, and one. Why does this matter? Why does that even matter? Well, because it matters because of how the song makes us feel. It bounces along playfully, but it feels like a series of constant interruptions with those two four bars just inserted in there. It's kind of like you're going for a jog, dun, 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 and then someone just checks you on the shoulder. Man. In a common time signature, for example, maybe something a little more musically typical, whatever that means, it would feel more like bum bum, you know, but instead, every two bars were greeted with another frantic, what's this? Bum bum. It's like, what's this? Oh no. And interrupt, what's this? I can't. I can't even. What's this? Oh no. Every couple of bars is another discovery, another thing that Jack sees. This is a great songwriting example of the music reinforcing the emotion that Jack is feeling. What's this? And what's this? Another great lyric reinforced by bum bum. You know, it's funny. I used to think that it was awkward to get the words, what's this, out in time. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, my sophomoric take on the tune was like, what's this? What's this? It's so hard to get that out. I don't know if that's very singable, I used to think. But now, as an adult, I think that that's part of the point of this song. You can't contain the frantic pace of Jack's excitement and constant discoveries. He can barely get it out. What's this? What's this? No, 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 no. Even when he has a moment where something emotionally affects him and he takes a moment to pause, it doesn't last long as something else just grabs his attention. Oh my, what now? The children are asleep. But look, there's nothing underneath. No ghouls, no witches here to scream and scare them or ensnare them. Only little cozy things secure inside their dreamland. <sighs> What's this? Now, Jack is inspired, inspired for the first time in a long time. And he goes back to tell Halloween Town all about Christmas. Yeah, it doesn't go too well, of course, as they can't even begin to comprehend it. The soundtrack show will continue in a moment. We return now to the soundtrack show. What we have when Jack tries to explain Christmas to his Halloween cohorts in a tune called Town Meeting Song is the first example of several tunes in Nightmare Before Christmas that are designed to move the plot along, almost like patter songs. 
They're more like recitative in the operatic sense than they are full songs, or arias, if you remember my episode on opera and Wagner. Let's listen to a bit of Town Meeting Song. Listen, everyone. There were objects so peculiar they were not to be believed. All around things to tantalize my brain. It's a world unlike anything I've ever seen. And as hard as I tried, I can't seem to describe like a most improbable dream. But you must believe when I tell you this. It's as real as my skull, and it does exist. Here, let me show you. This is a thing called a present. The whole thing starts with a box. A box? Is it steel? A box? Is it filled with a box? A box? How delightful a box. If you please. Just a box with bright colored paper. And the whole thing's topped with a bow. A bow? But why? How ugly. What's in it? What's in it? That's the point of the thing, not to know. It's a bat. Will it bend? It's a rat. Will it break? Perhaps it's the head that I found in the lake. Listen now, you don't understand. That's not the point of Christmas land. Okay. One of the first things to notice is that this also functions as a bit of a plot-driven reprise to Jack's Lament. Musically, it's very similar, especially here. And since I am dead, I can take off my head to recite Shakespearean quotations. And here. There were objects so peculiar they were not to be believed. All around things to tantalize my brain. This new development, introducing Christmas to the town hall filled with Halloween ghouls, is directly linked to Jack's dissatisfaction with the status quo. His I Want song. This problem is growing. What follows after this tune is a long sequence that's driven by musical underscore. Jack studies Christmas, applies the scientific method, Sally has a vision of it all going badly, and Elfman's film score really shines here. I want to back up and talk about this film score and talk about some of the textures that are used in this movie. Danny Elfman really uses a broad range of instruments with great effectiveness. If we were to go back and listen to The Overture, for example, you'll immediately hear heraldic brass playing the Christmassy What's This melody. In particular, French horns with their nobility, this sort of hark the herald angels sing type of vibe. And for a large part, trumpets join that as well. sets it apart from Halloween Town. Because Halloween Town seems to almost exclusively feature woodwinds, from clarinets and bass clarinets, to alto and tenor and berry saxophones, to oboes. Sometimes woodwinds can remind us of creaky, knotted trees, or perhaps slightly soured expressions, even when the melodic line is quite pretty. And of course, percussion also adds huge textures. 
the Jingle Bells and What's This immediately give us images of Christmas and Santa Claus, whereas the xylophones in Halloween Town give us a clacking, bony type of rattle underneath the melody. Also, as Jack is a character that is caught between two worlds, he is represented largely by a celeste in Jack's Lament. Now, this could be because of our nighttime setting here, giving us the softer side of Halloween Town, like a lullaby in the dead of night as Jack is having a private, quiet moment. But it's also very reminiscent of Christmas, ever since Tchaikovsky used it in his Nutcracker Ballet in 1892 with the dance of the sugar plum fairies. As we go along, we'll discuss more textures as we hear them, calling out Elfman's brilliant work not only as the songwriter, but also as the film composer. By the way, I should really take a moment to mention something that I've been wanting to mention for the last couple of episodes. Danny Elfman's orchestrator, for more than 100 films, is someone that he's been collaborating with since his Oingo Boingo days. Elfman's orchestrator is none other than Boingo guitarist Steve Bartek, who's orchestrated almost every movie that Danny Elfman has ever scored. And on my right, the man who stood on my right for 17 years with Oingo Boingo, who I've been working with for about 44 years now and has uh, orchestrated over 100 scores that I've written, Mr. Steve Bartek. The very first film he did, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, um, came out of the blue. Kind of. He was looking for a, a low a low profile, and this one was like a little higher profile than he wanted. And he took me along as a safety net. I did what I always do with Danny. I was his orchestrator and responsible for making sure what he thought he was writing was what we got out of the orchestra. But back to our story. The music of Jack's obsession opens with woodblocks representing a ticking clock as Jack has sequestered himself for hours trying to figure out Christmas. And the repetitive nature of the melody helps to sustain the tension. As his frustration over Christmas time starts to grow. Let's take a listen. Something's up with Jack, something's up with Jack. Never says a word. Hope he hasn't died. Something's up with Jack. Something's up with Jack. Christmas time is buzzing in my skull. Will it let me be? I cannot tell. There are so many things I cannot grasp. When I think I've got it, then at last. Through my bony fingers, it does slip. Like a snowflake in a fiery grip. <laughs> Great line. Eventually, Jack explodes into a fit of rage as he decides that understanding Christmas shouldn't be a prerequisite for loving Christmas or participating in Christmas, or worse yet, making Christmas his own. Or perhaps it's really not as deep as I've been led to think. Am I trying much too hard? Of course, I've been too close to see. The answer's right in front of me. Right in front of me. It's simple, really. Very clear, like music drifting in the air. Invisible, but everywhere. 
Just because I cannot see it, doesn't mean I can't believe it! You know, I think this Christmas thing is not as tricky as it seems. And why should they have all the fun? It should belong to anyone! Not anyone, in fact, but me! Why, I could make a Christmas tree! And there's no reason I can find I couldn't handle Christmas time! I bet I could improve it too! And that's exactly what I'll do! <laughs> Eureka! I've got it! The Pumpkin King of Halloween goes very quickly from having faith in Christmas enough to know that it's for everyone, then saying, well, not everyone but me, I should do this and get it approved by the mayor. I'm going to throw Christmas time this year. Oh, yikes. And we're just getting started. When the soundtrack show returns, we're going to discuss how Jack goes about making Christmas, including enlisting the help of henchmen of an even greater evil that lays hidden in Halloween Town. We'll discuss the voice talent behind some of these other amazing characters. We'll take a few more listens to the film's score and discuss the exciting musical conclusion of Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Thank you. The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.